Hello and welcome to the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My very special guest is Kim Shannon, founder and co-CIO of Siona Investment Managers. Since joining the industry in 1983, Kim has won numerous awards, including Morningstar Fund Manager of the Year in 2005, the RBC Canadian Woman Entrepreneur Award in 2007, and Canada's Most Powerful Women Top 100 in both 2007 and 2017. She sits on the board of the Brandis Institute, the Ontario Arts Council, and United Corporation. Last year, Kim was among a select few to present at the Columbia Business School's From Graham to Buffett Omaha panel, and in 2019, co-hosted the female-led Variant Perspectives Value Investing Conference in 2019, featuring Warren Buffett as keynote speaker. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Kim, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you. Terrific. Thanks. Glad to be here, Pierre. Um, Kim, to kick things off, before we get to talking, please tell us about your background. What inspired you to get into the business, uh, the arc of your career? Uh, what it was like to start your own firm, and what's new. <laughs> That's Just a lot to unpack. Do that. So let's keep <laughs> going. Um, well, I, I started off in university studying anthropology, anthropology, zoology. Um, but in the meantime, I did a lot of volunteer work. And at the end of my degree, I realized it was time for a change and had a, in, a, in a casual conversation with a friend, had an epiphany that this organizing thing that I love to do as running all these student organizations was business. So I went back and I did an undergrad in, in economics and commerce, graduated with distinction, realized I was onto something, looked for a job. Um, it was uh, uh, way back in uh, early 93 and, and it was an economic recession. Um, and I, I found, I was lucky enough to find a job in a, a really small trucking fleet insurance company managing insurance reserves right. and basically rolling T-bills. And it was, you know, in a contrary way, one of the best jobs to get at the time because I ended up, um, managing equity reserves. But at that moment in time, I was rolling T-bills. Um, at 14%, equities <laughs> were trading at a nine PE multiple, excuse me. It was, this was in the early eighties, not the right. early nineties. Yeah. And, um, you know, if nobody in their right mind had any desire to go into equity investing, um, and that yeah, I this wanted was, this to was just, uh, shortly after the death of equities, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we, yeah. we had a, this peak in interest rates. And um, we were constantly looking over our back for inflation to come back again. And uh, I end up deciding I need to work in an investment department and land at uh, Royal and Sun Alliance in the investment department, which I worked at for a decade. Right. And was fortunate enough to work under a very brilliant value investor called John DiTomaso. Um, and he was a philosophy major. And he, um, he was a cigar bud value guy. Um, and he came at business from the perspective, from a very philosophical perspective. And I learned that the stock market reflects human nature as much as it does underlying fundamental values. And that human beings have a tendency to success 
and that gets embedded in stock prices in multiple ways. Right. And value managers try and take advantage of that excess embedded by searching the landscape, looking for stocks trading below a intrinsic value and then patiently waiting for them to come back. So I learned at the feet of someone very good, watched it happen over several years. When he left, I got the top job and um, did very well. Um, moved to a, a, a real investment counselor to learn the trade, connected up with um, an old mutual fund company, um, Spectrum United, right. uh, managed one of, and was took over one of the oldest Canadian mutual funds in Canada, the Canadian Investment Fund, dating back to 1932. Yep. Um, and it was down to 40 million, which is basically you take it out into the back shed and kill it. <laughs> um, and uh, we, you know, I applied it, you know, my techniques of value investing um, with low risk because I'd modified from John being a cigar butt value manager a bit. You know, you, re you reflect your own personality in the way that you invest. Yeah. Um, and we improved the track record dramatically. And by the time I, I separated from that fund, it had become like once again, the largest Canadian equity mutual fund in Canada. And along the Amazing. way, yep. back in 2002, after, you know, I'd moved to Spectrum, I'd moved to Merrill Lynch, and then I had a chance to launch Siona um, with um, a new holder of the mutual fund company, CI Funds. Um, and, and we were, um, had a very good relationship for four years until we decided to disconnect. Um, and, um, so my assets have, were very variable and they grow very dramatically. And yep. it then shrunk so from basically nine billion of EUM down to nine hundred million. So in this essence, we had a, we started all over again, um, and then we've been building up ever since. So that's the history of the firm overall. How I started the firm, you know, with a major client, which made it um, a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, carry carrying on. But as you can imagine, you know, it hasn't been the best decade it hasn't been the best two years for value overall so you know you're you're catching a value manager you know on their on their back legs so to speak you know we've had a good move in value um it's but it's it's come and gone but it's very similar to what you saw in prior prior cycles of this right. of the big switch from growth back to value yeah i was gonna say i mean it's been a very tough go for value managers in general this last decade, but uh, touching on what you're just saying, that that's historically, that's what separated the wheat from the chaff. I mean, it's having and maintaining the fortitude and the conviction to stick to your style and to stick at, to, to stay with your convictions as a value investor uh, and not be tempted to stray away from your style or to drift. And, um, you know, many value investors have come and gone uh, that way, you know, have sort of caved into the pressure to change style. And, and so I think, I think when, when, you know, everything gets ironed out in the long run, um, we'll see, you know, <laughs> who the, who the purists were and, and who wasn't. And yeah. I think, I think that says a lot about, says a lot for you in terms of, of being true to your philosophy of investing. Um, which, you know, in, in the, in the very long-term sense is, is not really strictly value investing. It's just investing, isn't it? It's just good investing. 
And and because because I think a lot of people have been sort of perplexed over the last decade by by fundamentals being completely disregarded as as a uh, reason for investing and just focusing yeah. on momentum or just focusing on growth, but especially yes. momentum. Um, so having said that, has has well, could I just jump in and add to yeah, some of that? By all the means, items by all means. You that you put out there. I mean, what's really interesting about the last decade, actually the last 12 years, is when you look back historically, the data comparison between value and growth goes back to 1926. The data banks just aren't granular enough prior to that to be able to sketch out the details. People, you know, you just can't get your hands on old financial statements to really disaggregate. Right. And and when you get back to that time frame, you have less than you basically only have monthly data. You don't have daily trades. You certainly don't have hourly trades documented. So you're you're dealing with a lot of really sketchy information. And in that history of some odd 90 years, this has been the deepest and the longest period of underperformance of value. So last year I wrote a piece called Waiting for Dawn. Um, <laughs> because it and and we also ended it. When we came out of that, that, that big correction in the spring of 2020, it was the first time in financial market history for value versus growth where value actually underperformed in a bad market. So that yeah. really affected client psyche about value because a lot of clients had held in with value because it always defended in a down market. And this was the first time that it didn't. Now, it did come roaring back with the overall market and value did fine ultimately, but it was very brutal. The deeper value you were, the more brutal the pain was um, in that time period. Right. So that was, um, that really caused a big rift for value investing. But, you know, I've been in the markets since 83 and, you know, and also my mentors all lived through the 70s. And, and and in the mid-70s, you know, when nobody was really, you know, you had the, the whole nifty 50 phenomena, which, um, you know, we'd never seen stocks in aggregate go to a 25 PE multiple before in financial market right. history. That was considered insane. Um, and then we know how that unfolded. And so we, you know, value managers has have been challenged in the past. There was a big, ugly period in the 30s. Then there was notably the mid 1970s. Then I got to witness the 18, the 87 crash. Um, but that whole period leading up to that 87 crash was very brutal for value managers. Um, and then there was of course, 2000, um, which for me personally was worse than what's been happening today in a lot of ways. It was just briefer for Canadian investors, but you know, in the summer of 2000, underperforming the benchmark by 20 percent mm -hmm. um you know it was just a brutal underperformance and i wondered how long it would take to earn back relative outperformance you know we we earned back so much by the end of that year and and the next two years was huge relative outperformance for value but when you look at those past challenges you, it tends to come in waves, And I think a lot of people forget it. Bernstein wrote a fabulous piece about the 2000 unwinding of value and growth. 
And, and the first phase is very similar to what's happened this cycle. The first phase, the companies that earned no earnings got hit first. Right. Then if you recall in Canada, there was that painful period where Nortel had gone all the way up to $90 a share and then had corrected all the way down to 60. Yeah. Only over the summer in Canada, and you know, growth peaked in March in the U.S. It peaked September 1 in Canada because we had the optical stocks, Nortel and JDS, and they shot to the moon um, all through the summer. And um, you know, we had Nortel go to $124 a share and, was a bo- and became 36% of the benchmark, yeah. making it very hard for anyone who was trying to avoid an outrageously overpriced stock like that. So I think we're now um, potentially beginning the, the second phase of the unwinding, which is that you have legitimate tax stocks that have um, excessive implied growth um, embedded in their valuation and implied growth rates that are unlikely to be sustained. And, and for me, the poster childs of that in the marketplace today, you don't have to be Tesla and Shopify. Um, they're both trading at extraordinary multiples. Um, you know, and you know, even if you're trying to find like a forward multiple that makes it make sense, right. you know, you can maybe get them down to 150, um, PE multiple. And, um, at that level, you know, it's, as you, you know, it means it's 150 years for the current earnings to pay for this stock. Right. So the applied growth rate is so significant. And when you look back at history, how many stocks have had phenomenal implied growth rates? And, and, and for such a long time horizon, you know, the average tenure of the publicly listed stock today is, is somewhere around 20 years. And when you look back at what were the, the biggest stocks of 100 years ago, not many of them still exist in any significant way today. And when you look at the darlings of prior stocks, stock markets, like the 1970s and like 2000, like back in the seventies, you know, part, you know, you had stocks like that, that went on to do extremely well, like McDonald's and like Disney, Uh, but you made no money at all in these stocks for 15 to 20 years. Yeah. And what was the likelihood that you stayed in an ownership position with those stocks, you know, regardless of, you know, the following 20 years, what was the, what was, what's the, what are the odds that you stayed there? You know, in a lost position, you know, overall total return. And, and you, what, even when you look back at 2000, you know, of the, the Bernstein report that looked at the top nine and the top 12, you know, only two of those stocks ever came back to the same market cap highs. All the rest did not. You yeah. know, Nortel's gone, Sun Microsystems is gone, Cisco's around, not so exciting. Lucent's around, you know, uh, Intel's around. Nobody talks about those stocks to the same <laughs> degree anymore. They're no yeah. longer exciting stocks. And, and you, you have a number of people thinking that the top stocks of today will, will walk on water for a very long period of time. Some might, yeah. but you know, some probably will not. And so, you know, value managers think, and I, you know, I've seen it happen over and over again. You're safer buying good quality firms, 
you know, where you understand the earnings machine capability of the firm, you look at those normalized earnings, you make, you know, very simplistic assumptions about where it's going to go in the next couple of years. And then you try and buy those stocks with a nice fat margin of safety so that if anything goes wrong in the fullness of time, you really should make some money on those names. And, and you're starting to see some opportunity once again out there in the marketplace for value. Um, you know, perhaps we'll have the revenge of contrarian investors. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the full story hasn't been told. We are in the middle of it and there's still a lot of doubt out there. Yeah. I, um, you know, it, it, it reminds me of, of the, um, you know, listening to you, it's, it's, it's reminiscent really when you look at, at, uh, for example, you know, the. 60, the 1966 to 81 period, um, you know, a few people, I, I guess what I'm going to get at is that I think today's, a lot of today's market participants are not in touch with history anymore. Um, of course, there are those, uh, there's always exceptions to that. So I don't want to include every, I want to say, I don't want to say everybody's not in touch with market history, but a lot of that perspective is being shared by a minority of people. And the majority seem to be locked in to what's going on in markets the last 10 years, the last 12, you know, 10 or 12 years. And, and um, that's the, age, the average age of participants. Yeah. Like when you think about the stock market and, and investing is the, the average investor comes into the market. Maybe they start dabbling a little bit in their twenties, but they don't have a lot of money. So it's not until you're almost 30 that you have a little bit of money. And then you start playing around and you try to learn the craft of investing. And then you start in a certain environment. I happen to start with, you know, short-term interest rates were 14% and, yeah. and equity PE multiples were nine. Um, and, you know, so you, you're trying to learn the lessons. The lessons that were being taught back then is you look at the last boogeyman or the last excitement in the market. And the last boogeyman back in the early 80s was inflation. We spent over a decade looking for inflation to come back. We didn't yeah. believe that it had gone away. My entire CFA was all about how to operate in an inflationary environment. I finally think I might get a chance to use that knowledge. Yeah. It hasn't been useful to me for my whole career. So you, the window that you learn in, so people start investing. And, and typically, most investors make a lot of mistakes before they decide they need to find a professional to help them. Um, because at the rate they're going, they're not going to have money for their retirement. And then you only get to this investment time horizon of making wealth for about 40 years, unless we change longevity for human beings. And then you have to spend the rest of your life eating your cooking. And that's why you eventually go find a professional to help you manage. And ideally, your professional um, helper will know a lot about the sweep of financial market history because you're, you know, I mentioned earlier, markets are equal parts, rationality and human emotions. And you can't forget the other. And, and so the markets go to euphoric highs and depressed lows well above and well below long-term true net worth. And, and it, it behooves investors to understand that. And, and we have this unique environment today 
as in all markets where you have a lot of young participants who haven't been in the market that long. Even the profile of professionals. When you look at the profile of the Toronto Society of Financial Analysts, which has to be a microcosm for the entire CFA organization globally, right. you, you look at the number of participants over the age of 50, it's 10% or less of the population. So, you know, you start doing the math and you slice down that age group. You know, how many participants have even witnessed a bear market like 08? Exactly. You know, very yeah. few. And then to actually have witnessed 2000 and or 87 and, and, or, you know, you have to be, a, you know, of a certain age, mostly in retirement to have remembered what it was like to operate in the seventies. So there's not a lot of participants around sharing those experiences and education and no, low, no big surprise. The data is showing we have one of the most speculative markets out there. A lot of people playing in a very speculative way. We also have a lot of lending in terms of investing, which has always um, talked about the excessiveness of markets. And we have one of the most expensive um, markets in the world, particularly centered in the U.S. in financial market history. It's been rare to see a market this expensive. You know, I, I saw a recent quote that said, when you add both public and private companies together, um, as a percentage of GDP, the number's 290 today. It was 190 in 2000 when the market blew up. This is a risky, yeah. overpriced market, particularly in the U.S., which is the leading market in the world. And, and the U.S. market is a significant part of the global benchmark, which people are clustering into. Um, this is a market to be care careful and cautious in. Um, and, you know, and I will argue is it an excellent market to begin to move more of your ex, you know, your, your investing into value to protect your wealth. Right. And in particular, I think Canada is, um, a more reasonably priced market in aggregate with a better yield, which is also affirming how inexpensive our market is overall. And in the aftermath of 2000, Canada was cheaper and it outperformed the U.S. market for six years solid after that. And, and the relative cheapness of Canada against the U.S. compared to 2000, we are cheaper today yeah. than, the, than we were relative to the U.S. of 2000. So there so, is that opportunity for the history to repeat itself. To so we're, we're going to get to Canada. I want to ask you about that. But <laughs> first, first, um, I'm just curious to know. Uh, has your value investing style evolved? And, and if so, how? Yes. Excellent question. Because, you know, obviously you have to change with the types and you have to change with the data. And you also have to change with the change in accounting rules. And um, they've changed fairly dramatically throughout my career. And, and most um, of us would argue that right now, uh, book value is not as compelling a ratio to look at is in the past. Um, it may become more compelling in the future, but you know, the movement to fair value accounting um, has, has, has broken down some of those signals in certain industry groups in particular. And so you've had to lean um, more heavily on other ratios and, and, and attributes. Um, you know, again, you have, so that has happened. The other thing is, is in the early part of my career, 
it was very hard to download information. Um, literally, my job early on was to call each company up and ask for their annual report. Right. We were to arrive in the mail and record the data um, in our model. And we would price it once a week off a modem and turn it on overnight. <laughs> um, and charting yeah. took you did overnight on a dot matrix system. So technology has dramatically improved and the quality of information and the overload of information. Early in my career, we sought information. We wanted to get an information yeah. advantage. <clears throat> now it's about editing the voluminous information that's coming right. at people. So that's been um, a big sea change, but more information isn't always useful. And I, I, you know, one of the CEOs of a major corporation in the past said, you want more information, we'll give you a telephone book of information. <laughs> and that's a bit of what you're getting now. It's, it's definitely stronger and stronger cups of coffee to read through the notes of financial statements today. They're so complicated and complex and voluminous. Um, so you've had to adjust to um, all of those changes, but the core principles um, of value investing have still remained um, there. And there's still the principle of, of looking at aggressive accounting practices. Um, we've, you know, we've always looked at governance, but today governance has been expanded to E and S. Yeah. And, and they've always been there. You, you know, you always would have the risk of a liability if you invested in a company that was, you know, not being good on E and S as well. Eventually right. those liabilities will come back and bite you. So you, you know, we were always focusing on quality, but the, uh, the demands have certainly uh, cranked up on that. Um, but data makes that, um, easy to handle those extra, easier to handle those extra loads in terms of the research. Yeah. Speaking of ESG, I, I, you know, what we've seen, we've seen, I think from our, you know, from, from our side, you know, in terms of our audience being advisors, we've, we've seen, I think what we would deem to be a lot of ambivalence about ESG. And I think it goes to what you just said, which is that, which is that, you know, a lot of people in the business feel like this is not new. Why do I have to act like it is? <laughs> right. Why do I have to why do I have to identify it as something new when it's not actually new? It's something that's always been there. We've always been worried about, you know, whether or not we should invest in tobacco stocks or fossil fuels or polluters or, you know, union carbide as sort of a historical example of a, a company that that, you know, created an incredible amount of risk for investors uh, and losses. And um, you know, I, I think people a lot of a lot of a lot of advisors maybe shrug off ESG, thinking like you know what's all the fuss? What's the big deal about ESG? Um, and really, all that's changed is that it's become more defined. It's not it's not something that's that's sort of uh, uh, you know esoteric anymore, or something that that you you on a one off basis consider you know as you're picking stocks. But it it just well, you know you have to keep in mind that. That, that environmental issues are probably best dealt with at a government level. Yes. And because the government talked a big talk and didn't act very much, you know, frustrated people thought, well, let's take another tact. 
and they went after publicly listed firms. And, and so we're bearing the brunt of the public's desire to change something that should have been handled by governments. Um, and so that's part of why there is a, a certain element of frustration. This isn't probably being best dealt with at the right level. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of debate about, you know, should we be forcing um, major corporations that by and large are, you know, the, the, better, the better organizations out there have tried to be good in the major nations, good corporate citizens on environmentalism. And, but, you know, they're getting tarred and feathered for having some of the, um, some, uh, some operations, let's say like coal. And so there's this whole divestment um, urge that's gone out there. And firms have had to sell these assets to, to look yeah. cleaner and better. But, you know, who are they selling them to? Yeah. And that's one of the issues. And then once it's gone dark in terms of a public ability to force behavior, you know, will, will, will they be managed in a responsible way? And one of the, the uh, shocking um, delay, you know, results of this year is that the underinvestment in a lot of energy has had numerous splashdown effects such that, you know, you're, uh, you're now seeing parts of Europe and Asia having to turn to coal in order to supply enough um, energy right. um, to run businesses and heat homes um, because we relied on renewables um, as your staple source and there isn't enough of them. Like, I, you know, I understand one of the issues in England this year is, is that there wasn't enough um, uh, sun in the summer and, and enough wind to run the turbines. <laughs> and so they were had to rely on natural gas and there was a lack of supply. And, and so, you know, the price of energy has gone up very, very rapidly. So that's an unintended consequence of trying to move a little too fast. Renewables only represent currently... 12% of the total energy picture. Yeah. Um, and we're trying, the world's trying rapidly to change it, but that's the reality to which we face right at the moment. Yeah, I, I'm, it reminds me of the uh, sort of the foibles of what's going on in Germany with nuclear power and coal or nuclear power versus coal. Um, you know, last decade, Germany phased out half of its nuclear reactors because of Fukushima. And, and because of, you know, German uh, sort of resistance to, to nuclear power in general because of Chernobyl. And, and so in the, in the course of doing that, uh, they had to replace nuclear with coal. And there's this great movie, I don't know if you've seen it, this Ed Bertinsky movie um, called Anthropocene. And it's on, it's, on, uh, it's on Crave or HBO or one of those stations. And one of the segments details what's going on in Germany with coal excavation. And they're literally, they've got these coal excavators that are the size of buildings. And they are carving up the German countryside for lignite. And, and in the course of doing this, they're, they're raising villages and towns that are in the way. And the people in those villages and towns have to be relocated. Um, and they're tearing down historical monuments and in, in, in an effort to feed the, the coal machine in Germany. And, and so 
they're not able, they, they haven't been able to keep up with the demand for coal. And because of that, so now not only is Germany uh, a, a huge emitter because of their power demands that are being fed by coal uh, instead of nuclear, they now have to buy excess power from France, from France's nuclear power. And, and so they've, they've defeated themselves on both fronts. They're, they're not only a larger emitter for, for their power demands because they tried to meet with this, this, this governance demand of, of uh, closing down nuclear, um, but they're now buying nuclear power anyway. And, and so, so they've got this double problem of pollution and governance that they're grappling with. And, you know, it's, it's ironic because again, they're, there again, it's, it's an unintended consequence of, of, you know, let's say bad governance decisions and, or, or mis, misdirected government go, governance decisions on the ESG side in order to meet with social demands of the people. And, and, uh, and then at the same all time, well intended. It's all well time, intended. It's all well intended. On the other side of the nuclear, on the other side of the nuclear uh, question is now that that you know people are starting to re-identify nuclear as clean energy, and and so you know the the reignition or 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 starting of new nuclear power plant, um, uh, you know properties in particular by China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, is is placing huge demands on, on on the future for uranium, right? So uranium prices have skyrocketed, and yeah. and so so I you know I look at that and I think it's ironic that that you know in the course of of trying to decarbonize the world and in order to try to decarbonize supply, they've been decarbonizing supply at a faster rate than demand, than decarbonizing yeah. demand. And so, you know, there's so a book written five years ago or so. Um, yeah. They got great reviews in uh, business uh, um, or, you know, Financial Times, for example. And it was called The Moral Case for Oil. And, and in a lot of ways, that book foretold the situation that we're in today. And they, t they talked about the, you know, yes, we're trying very hard on technological innovation, but if we move too fast, um, it, it increases the cost of energy, um, which is what we're seeing. And in a right. sense, we're, you know, yes, environmentalism today is part of this picture of what looks like growing persistent inflation. Because, you know, we're seeing fuel prices around the world going up dramatically. And, and that it spills over into so many goods and products and services, and, and it's forcing prices up. And that's why I think we're starting to see the word transient getting removed from this whole inflation argument overall. Um, and we're also seeing now, you know, fairly um, persistent movements in wage um, inflation. And in particular, I'm finding it interesting it was about a month ago, uh, John Deere and company, I understand their union turned down a 10% wage hike. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we have not had unions have a lot of power and push back against business yeah. in several decades. Um, so the world is, seems That's to be starting to happen though, fast. right? Yeah. Just, uh, and I think, this I think is part of that whole, you know, yeah. I, I think the business world is, you know, it's this major ecosystem 
And when you move one element of that ecosystem, it has impacts all over that ecosystem. Lab labor is starting to get a foothold. And uh, I mean, yesterday there was the news about the, uh, the Starbucks, the, uh, the Starbucks outlet that unionized, you know, <laughs> I can't remember where it was. I don't, it was, it was in somewhere in Detroit in, or Buffalo, yeah. Buffalo, 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 Western New York. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, like, wow, where did that come from? You know, unionizing a store. I mean, that's where it starts obviously is unionizing a store. Next thing is unionizing the whole state. And then, and then, uh, you know, a movement gets started and, uh, but the labor movement, I think is, is, is slated for a comeback. And so, you know, and those are the sticky parts of, of, uh, in, inflation, right? I mean, those yes. are the aspects of inflation that you can't, that you can't do away with or, or go back to, go, you know, revert back to the mean. You can't, you can't put people back on a lower wage after you've given them a higher one. And, well, we haven't had wage pressure. Yeah. Um, to any significant degree for quite some time. Um, and that was, I think, part of why people were willing to accept that inflation was transient. But it's, but now that you're seeing difficulty filling positions, um, you're seeing a lot of movement of labor of, at all levels, and um, employers are starting to realize that it's very difficult to replace your best employees if they leave. And so they're willing to give them, um, offer them more money, more incentives to stay with the employer. And that is, that is really creating that push on inflation, which is ultimately, it's another element of adding to that inflationary story. And, and it's coming in, in a sense, almost just on, in time, you know, you were trying to talk a bit about this, the sweeps of history when you were talking about the 66 to 81 time period. Yeah. Um, because that was the sideways market in equities. But, you know, 81 symbolic. We had interest rates um, peak in 1981. So the last low, the last deflationary low in interest rates was in 1941. And the U.S. fell to what was considered then an all-time record low interest rate of 1.95%. That sounds almost great today. And then it started to, it had a long low U. Um, and it went sideways for a lot, lengthy period of time. And then it slowly started increasing. And then we eventually had runaway inflation leading into 1981, where it peaked. And uh, Reagan and Volcker broke the back of inflation expectations by ramming rates very, very high and was successful. And rates started to come down. And uh, we have been in a deflationary. So that was a 40 year upcycle for yeah. rates. And then now we've just arguably completed a 40-year cycle down. In fact, it ended up being a little less than 40 years. Um, and if you look back in history, you know, rate cycles tend to be roughly 20 years. 20 years, they kind of go yeah. up, and then 20 years, they kind of go down. And if you look back in history, except for this extremely lengthy period from 41 to 81, and uh, you tend to find that these cycles are, are somewhat symmetrical. But Jeremy Grantham has talked about when you get three standard deviation events, when something's really off the charts. He said, when you have this, uh, you know, incredible, he talked about this a lot in the 2000 period, you have something go up dramatically, 
Yeah. And he did it, you know, for markets, for segments of the markets, for commodities, you know, any kind of investable asset. Yeah, they, their analysis is amazing. You know, <laughs> when, if it went up, it came back down pretty much to where it began. Yeah. But he said they, it often comes back down a little shorter. So, you know, <laughs> a few months shorter. Yeah. So I would argue that probably the low in rates, if, if history repeats itself and time will tell the answer to this, it was probably the spring of, uh, two, of 2020 because we had, because of COVID shock, a synchronous drop in rates to new lows. Um, and synchronous is symbolic in a lot of ways in my mind. And so we had this drop in rates to new lows and, um, and we've had it rise since then, um, in a, you know, stepwise fashion, but we're up off those lows. So, and now we seem to have inflation that's no longer transient, but potentially permanent. So are we now finally in that paradigm pricing shift of rising interest rates? And, um, you know, looking back at history, it, it seems probable. Now you can argue that that's not correct because Japan is in a different cycle and, um, it's drop in rates has lasted even longer. So is that our guide or mm. is history our guide? Yeah, I mean, the Japan example is a wonderful, uh, sort of history lesson, isn't it? I mean, in terms of looking at, you know, the fact that, that Japan has never recovered back to its 89 high, um, you know, it reminds me, like, I, 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 just to change gears a little bit, because I, I'm just curious to know, like, you know, we, we're now talking about these two 40-year trends, 41 to 81 and 82 to 22. Um, and do you, think, do you think that this deflationary cycle that we've been in, this long 40-year deflationary or disinflationary cycle that we've been in, uh, with rates falling from historical highs to, you know, 5,000 year lows. Um, <laughs> um, do you think that, is it possible that the rise of passive investing has corresponded along with it in terms of, of, of the, the rise and the adoption from 81, uh, you know, beginning with passive investing in, in the early days to, to what is now this passive behemoth um, and, th and the reason I'm asking that is that, is that, um, Mike Green from Simplify has really, uh, sort of has come out in the last, uh, year and a half or so with his, with what's now called the inelastic market hypothesis. And, and it runs counter to the, uh, FAMA, uh, efficient market hypothesis. So it's the contra argument. And, and in it, it, it the argument is that, that the shift from, historically active management to the present uh, of passive inde indexing, passive investing has created a substantial inel uh, inelasticity in the market. Uh -huh. right? well, I, haven't, I haven't read his material, but it sounds pretty fascinating. I mean, the history of passive investing, you know, it starts in the 60s with yeah. the development of the, the efficient market hypothesis, because you had to start with that. That belief that the market, you know, incorporates all known information into the market rapidly and instantly and gets priced in. Now, now this reminds and so the th me. The theory, the theory, Kim, is that, is that, is that the, 
the efficient market hypothesis, which led to passive investing, has caused the market to become inelastic. Yeah, no, I get right? the point. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I was yeah. just, it's, I wasn't. It, but, uh, <laughs> but it, but it's, it's, it's. Yeah. There's an element of, you know, throughout human history, philosophers have always tried to to forecast human behavior, and it's impossible to do because humans are essentially irrational. And and so, when you look at philosophers trying to forecast human behavior. And now economists or, you know, financial, you know, academics trying to forecast human behavior, they have to make some assumptions to come up with their theories. And they're the first assumptions they always make is assuming humans are rational, <laughs> which we know is not true. Yeah. And, and so that's the first step. So what's wrong with the efficient market hypothesis? Does the market instantly price all known information into a stock immediately? Is there no obstacles to uh, true net worth being priced into stocks immediately? Well, examples like the 87 stock market crash are good examples of that because, right. you know, we had a market that declined very rapidly in a day and then bounced back pretty rapidly too. Um, you know, did the values really drop 25% in a day or was it too high one day and too low the next? So, you know, I don't, so I'm, I'm, you know, most of all value managers by belief, um, uh, in value do not agree with the efficient market hypothesis. Right. We're all contrarian investors. We do not believe that stock, every single stock in the marketplace is efficiently priced. Now, when you move to passive investing, so that gets written. And by 1971, you had a random lockdown Wall Street written, which, which, which supposed that what if you were able to buy an index cheaply instead of paying at expensive active manager fees, if you were able to do just buy the index, wouldn't that be cool? You wouldn't, you could get the free rider effect of, you know, free rider yeah. common law. We, you could ride off the backs of, there's enough institutional investors, more or less making the market efficient, that you could now free ride on what they've done to the market and, and not pay them and get the benefits of an efficient market. What, so the great experiment that we're doing today is when, when are we at the point that there's so much passive management going on in the marketplace overall that the market might not be efficiently priced anymore. Right. And we don't know that until we hit it. And yeah, and exactly. We, or, and, and, and when you look at markets, you know, we, we rely so heavily now on benchmarking and benchmark indexes. And we've collectively decided that the best benchmarks are cap weighted benchmarks, but they do have flaws. And they're yeah. based on the most liquid names in the market. And Robert Arnault in his book, Fundamental Indexing, you know, and the, he built his firm largely off the theory of fundamental indexing, is that this, that cap, cap weighted benchmarks are essentially, you know, somewhat inefficient. And that if you reweight the benchmark in any rational way, because, you know, cap weighting captures um, the popularity contest in a market, right. like, you know, everybody loves Tesla. They're paying a crazy price 
Tesla represents a very large percentage of the benchmark. Um, and therefore, if Tesla comes back down to earth, that benchmark is going to get hit really hard. And then when you expand that to people falling in love with global benchmarks, right now the U.S. is, I believe, around 60% of the global benchmark. It was as high, I believe, as 70%. No market in the world has ever represented that high a weight in the benchmark. And the only one that did, you mentioned earlier, Japan. Yeah. Japan, back in 1989, was 44% of the global benchmark, was just crazy yeah. on the weight. The, the U.S. is currently a third, right? And and right now, you know, what weight in the global benchmarks is Japan? I believe the last time I looked at six and a half percent. So we're all believing that the U.S. must and should represent 60% of the global benchmark because of this cap part of weighting. And what you're mentioning is right now today, there's different ways of slicing a benchmark. And one rational way might be what's the GDP. And GDP for the U.S. would be 25%. For China would be 25%. China is a very small weight of the global benchmark because of this cap benchmark weighting. Um, so maybe the better number for the U.S. is somewhere between 25 and 60, mm -hmm. you know, but where? And, right. um, and, we, and we also know that after a market has become too, too expensive in a global benchmark, its weight can fall back down to earth. And Japan, you know, in a, cap, in a capitalization only basis is still below its prior higher of 89. Right. And interestingly enough, I, know, I don't know about other markets, but right now London is still below its 2000 high. Um, so when markets get overpriced, um, it takes a long time for investors to get their wealth back. And so passive investing or this um, enormous focus on, on global benchmarks could end up being um, a challenge for, for investors going forward in the future. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the, you know, the observation is that, you know, this very substantial segment of market participants is locked into this idea of, you know, just buy the index, just keep buying it. And, and as long as that sort of juggernaut of, of uh, buying is going on, whether it's, you know, 401ks in the U.S. that are buying the market every two weeks, um, you know, there's just that I think what, what, what looks very worrisome is the fact that, that every single one of those names, uh, you know, whether it's Apple or Tesla or, or, you know, they're just being bought indiscriminately and being valued higher indiscriminately as long as the buying is going on. But as soon as the tide reverses for any reason, uh, mm. there's very little support for those prices on the, on the yeah. reverse, on the reversal. Yeah. And when you look back in history and you can go back and look at. Uh, and, and, and conversely, there's more support for the lower cap value names in the market because, because of structural uh, support in the market. The market makers, is. the market makers have more support for for the the you know the ten twenty thirty billion cap companies than they do for the three trillion cap Apple because they simply can't support they can't support the market for Apple versus the way they can support the market for 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 a, a lower cap name. Well, what ends up happening is almost every active manager, to a greater or lesser degree, 
is a risk manager and will take some risk off the table in a hot, frothy, speculative market. And it happened in the past. And, and so what you see is, you know, when that market collapses, you know, the value managers tend to do well because or, yeah. and the active managers tend to start to outperform. So you actually have data going back in history, looking at active managers when they outperform the benchmark than when they underperform. And at a very hot, frothy, expensive market, active managers as a group underperform. And so people comment on that. Look at how few active managers are outperforming this benchmark. Therefore, you should be in passive investing. But this is, you know, arguably in a lot of ways, not the time to be owning, you know, this expensive market in an index way that by being with active managers who are managing risk more yeah. are likely to be more defensive on the way down. And that's what history suggests yeah. and what, you know, rationality suggests as well. Yeah, and that's assuming rationality comes back to, you know, reverts back to the mean. <laughs> A little higher. That the market is actually <laughs> rational to yeah, some degree. Exactly. Uh, exactly. But right now we're, you know, we value managers are going to argue the market's very irrational at the moment. And when it comes back down a little bit, it'll be more rational. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Kim, uh, before we run out of time, um, <laughs> because I, I do want to give it the time that it deserves, let's talk about Canada. All right. You, you've, sure. been talking, you've been talking a lot about Canada. We've talked about inflation today. Yeah. Um, we've talked about about, you know, we've even, we've talked about the market dynamics of inflation. We've talked about the fact that reflation is a value trade. Um, I think we've laid a, a pretty good groundwork to talk about why Canada is really attractive today. Well, you know, Canada is trading at a, a much lower multiple. The U.S. overall is trading at a 21 PE multiple. And historically, um, we've got good databanks going back to 1870. Um, and whenever you've had the market trading north of a 21 PE multiple, um, the Schiller PE multiple will suggest that over the next decade, your average return to investing should be 1%. Now, there's a swath of what has happened in the past, and it's been as juicy as an 8.5% annualized return over 10 years to a negative 6% annualized 10-year return to right. investing with an average of one. In the aftermath of 2000, the market was above a 21 PE multiple. 10 years later, um, in 2010, the average return ended up being right on that financial market history data set, right on 1% total return. So, but did anyone in buying in 2000 expect that their annualized return would be a mere one percent. Right. No. You know, when you think of the median, the amount of money that's thrown into the market back then is it is happening today. And that's where we are sitting in the marketplace today. And that's the US. And meanwhile, we have Canada trading at 15. Wow. You know, where where our market is fairly priced. It's priced at financial market history. Now, underneath the surface, Canada, again, like in 2000, is fairly bifurcated. We've got a very expensive Shopify and some other stocks in our market. Right. But right now, as at November, we have 70% um, of Canadian stocks are trading 
um, 10% below their 52-week highs. And 41% of Canadian stocks are trading uh, 20% below their 52-week highs. And uh, if you had the market overall trading 20% below your uh, your uh, your prior period, you yeah. know, like that 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 is um, that's a bear market. But yeah. what's TSX doing over the last year? It's <laughs> up 21%. Yeah. That is now if you look at history and Dimson Marks Marsh and Stoughton did the global benchmark survey of all major markets in the world going back 118 years. And and they're sh- they've shown that the average expected return to investing in Canada is 7%. Now to put that into context, the world index um, mm-hmm. is six and a half percent. US has tended to be a little bit richer than Canada. Um, and, but Canada is a little bit richer than the global benchmark overall in aggregate. And so we're not a bad one. We're actually a pretty decent returning market. So 21% return over the last year is three times the historical average. That's a really amazing <laughs> return, um, for, uh, the market overall. Um, so, and now I've lost my train of thought. Of but the, the index, <laughs> the, the, the index, Kim is, is really acting as a curtain for what's really going on underneath the index, right? Like I, I've been hearing from, from different, uh, you know, commentaries that, that we've actually been in a, in a bear market of sorts since February. Mm-hmm. And it's only, it's only these, these market leaders that are driving the entire market higher. So, so if you just follow the indices, you're getting the illusion that we're in this raging bear market, I'm sorry, raging bull market. Um, but in reality, uh, there's there's this entire layer, you know, of the market that's already in, already been in a bear market from as long from as far back as February since the turn in the market in February and yep. since the turn in the economy in February, and and so, you know, I guess the point I'll make there is that is that given that 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 the markets are actually in a bear market uh you know in terms of in terms of the the layer that we're talking about uh beyond the the top 10 or 20 names um that actually bodes extremely well for forward expected returns right? yes and then and, well, it, and then in the context of if you not want of the to... indices not not of the index but but of the individual names and and yeah. you're now seeing that the earnings the earnings um, growth expectations for value stocks are looking much better than the expected returns for growth stocks overall. But but if you but I think that it's very difficult to market time the market um, consistently well. At the extremes, maybe it's a little easier to do, but that's a debatable point too. Um, but if you want to stay fully invested, it behooves investors, and we know that that investors have moved away from domestic investing globally. That has been a worldwide trend. Yeah. Canada is no different. We're, we're hearing that the, the largest Canadian pension funds in Canada have a weighting and an allocation to Canada of a mere 4% these days. Um, and it's, they've basically moved to the cap-weighted global benchmark weight for Canada overall. And, and so this shrinking of interest in our domestic market also, I believe, has created this incredibly cheap market relative to a lot of other markets in the world. 
Now, European markets are, are fairly reasonable as well, but Canada's that much cheaper than them as well. And so on a PE multiple basis, we're 15. We have a richer dividend yield than most. We actually have a dividend yield that's far superior to our 10-year government bond yield. Yeah. So a lot of reasons to be embedded in Canadian equities. And now we also have an exposure to commodities. And, and there's some factors out there showing that when um, inflation is north of 4%, which it is today, that Canada tends to outperform the U.S. market. And we also see Canada so significantly cheap relative to the U.S. Historically, Canada then tends to outperform. So people have been um, not that excited about Canada because you tend to look at what the most recent past has held. And, and Canada has been fairly weak in the, the world scene. But now we've, we're so cheap. It's our turn. This is the contrarian investments. It's a bit like buying energy last spring at minus $35 a barrel. Right. It was almost a signal. This has gotten so low. There's an opportunity here. And we now know what's happened over the next year. You know, that we're at a, such a cheap level for the Canadian market overall. Is it potentially the time for this market to move ahead of other major markets? And, and start to outperform. We've had good returns year to date in Canada relative to a lot of major markets. Uh, speaking to your argument yeah. earlier that it's already um, happening. And like I've mentioned earlier, I think we've, we've gone through the first phase of value investing. Um, Bernstein identified three phases back in 2000. And, you know, I think we're about to, you know, Hopefully, in, in, in a reasonable time period, it's very hard to forecast the turns in markets. But, you know, that are we about to enter that second phase of value investing? And, um, and if you it, just to tie in that whole inflation argument, um, Professor Athen Asakopoulos um, <laughs> here in Canada at the yeah. Ben Graham School of Business, he did um, a study um, with a colleague going back to 1930, and he pointed out when inflation is above 2.5%, um, that value outperforms growth by um, 11%. Wow. And um, so he... Do you, do, you have the, parts. Yeah. do you have the paper, Kim? Yeah, and he, he actually wrote it up in the Globe and Mail. I'm okay. happy to send it to you. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to add it to the show notes. Yes. Um, you know, it, it, it uh, that, that brings us to really the big, one, one very big question, which is, do you want to passively own all of the market risk or actively manage, <laughs> actively manage the market risk? And, you know, like when you're looking at, at, at Canada, I mean, you know, we, our, our, our economy is, is, uh, you know, very narrowly, divided into into a few sectors and um you know it, it just strikes me that that you know financials ought to do uh, substantially better in a period uh going forward as as would commodities and energy um do you have any any um particular uh segments or or names that you like uh canadian names that you like right now that that are sort of you know, glaring opportunities as far as you're concerned? <laughs> yeah, um, of course. And uh, by the way, you know, I've taken my stand on active versus passive because I run an active management yeah. shop. So I've, I, 
and I've decided to stay in business. So, um, as, as you know, some of the points when you're at the greatest moment of pessimism, it's actually the greatest moment for opportunity. There's an opportunity for a massive change. And um, so I made my decision on that already. But I think there's some really interesting segments in the Canadian marketplace because of valuation. And, um, and you've talked about some of the larger segments in the Canadian market, but I don't want to, I don't think Canada is um, a distorted market. A lot of people try and say that we, we're too um, overweight in a few sectors. But if you look around the whole world, there is yeah. no perfect market that has 10% weighting in every single segment of the market. You know, Ricardo's law of comparative advantage from 200 years ago states, you know, if you're uneconomic at making something, stop making it and import. And what you are economic at making, you know, make a lot of it and export it. And you're wealthier and the world's wealthier. So there's benefits to concentrating. And, um, and every market in the world has some level of concentration. Even the U.S. market typically is 60% weighted in the top three sectors. Right. Um, Canada is a little more concentrated than most, but not significantly so. But uh, the areas of opportunity we see in the marketplace right now is in the energy space, but we're, we manage risks. So we're not going to take too huge a bet there. And we're going to focus in on the quality names, the financial services sector still, um, pipelines within the energy space right. look extremely attractive as well. And then smatterings throughout the, um, the other, you know, there's always, um, stocks out there that are attractive overall. So like the examples of great opportunities in the marketplace would be, let's say, a Manulife. Right. You know, Manulife is trading at a 7 PE multiple. It's almost a 5% dividend yield. It's overcapitalized to the tune of um, arguably $7 billion. Um, it's one of, it has a greater growth profile because it has a big exposure to Asia. I think people have always been a little worried about that. And they've, they've been worried about the history of Manulife because it had problems with its annuity business. It's been shrinking that annuity business. It's been selling that annuity business. And that, that company has been under enormous scrutiny from their board of directors for over a decade mm -hmm. for the challenges they faced in 2008. And so I think it's a better business than it was before. And it's, it's very inexpensive today. But, you know, you can also look at almost any Canadian bank. And, you know, certainly I, we have our favorites. But in aggregate, the Canadian banks are trading at um, 11, 12 PE multiples. They're, they're, they have dividend yields in the high threes into the fours. Um, they're overcapitalized. They were limited right. in, in increasing their dividends and, um, doing buybacks. They're, they're creeping back into it now that that, that's, uh, that prevention has um, been pulled off. They, they have excess capital of of uh, significant amounts across the franchise. Um, they're so well capitalized. They're so much better capitalized, better managed than they were in 2008. The risks have really started, you know, are not as apparent as they were back then. They should be able to weather any storms that are, you know, out there in a yeah. fairly comprehensive way. So they look attractive. But underneath that, like asset managers in aggregate are still cheap. Um, so there's, there's a lot of opportunity in that space. I think the pipelines, 
um, they're trading at six um, dividend yields. Um, they they have um, contracted businesses, not a lot of um, commodity price exposure, but yet they've been priced as if they have a lot of commodity price exposure. Right. And, um, you know, because of this long-term contracted business, they're very, very stable. Um, I think that they're very inexpensive and selected um, energy stocks um, in Canada are very reasonably priced. And I think part of it is is this whole divestment issue. It's put this big pressure. We've historically Canadian um, energy stocks trade at a premium multiple to U.S. stocks. Today, they're trading at a discount. And so, you know, they're really inexpensive relative to history, even today. Um, and and certainly compared to the commodity price that's out there at the moment. And so um, there is an opportunity for still today for contrarian trade in in that space overall. So those are kind of the highlights that I would say um, are very attractive in the Canadian space. And I also think that the um, we think that selectively some of what we call the value tech, um, the ones with real earnings. Yeah. In the software space, um, don't have crazy multiples at all. And um, and yet have really good, have had true and visible earnings growth over a long period of time. And they are inexpensive in a lot of cases today. So are you talking um, about uh, com- companies, companies like Constellation Brands or? You know, we, we quite like um, open text at the moment. Oh, open text. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's been off a little bit. And so it's creating um, a real opportunity for investors. This PE is like 14. Um, and, uh, you know, it's debt burden is, you know, 0.9. It's, you know, acceptable. Uh, it's a real business. It's, it's, it's possible to come up with normalized earnings in a business like this. Yeah. Yeah, there's also, I mean, Canadian, I mean, outside of financials and, and commodities, there are, there is this this other segment of Canadian companies that have been, very good at aggregating. Um, for example, Kushtard. And, that's another um, stock. Wait, that's an that's yeah. an, that's a reasonably priced stock in Canada today, um, and you know may well be a little bit misunderstood because people are aware that it's it's um, it's connected to gas stations through right. the ownership of convenience stores, and um, they're globally orientated. Um, and I think, you know, what we tend to get in history is that when people get excited about a trend, they tend to sort of want to bring the future in a lot faster than it's likely to emerge. And, and so people, I mean, right now, I think there's, there's four, four million, um, electric vehicle sales against, um, 70 million, uh, sales of, of, um, right. you know, ICE engines and internal combustion engines. And and that's changing and it's changing very fast. But when you look at a, a, a place like Norway where Kushtard operates as well, you know, 70% of all new car sales are, um, are electric vehicles. Yeah. And yet they, when you look at the sales of, of oil in Norway, it hasn't changed um, <laughs> because there's still such a, um, an amount of, of, of existing vehicles out there demanding oil. And, um, so that's what our, it's, 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 you know, ahead of us, 
and and people still need gas stations but they've gone one step further they also have you know fast they can yeah. they can fill up your car to 80 percent capacity on electric um in 20 minutes so they're right. making the convenience store very pleasant. You go in, you do a little bit of shopping, have a nice cappuccino, you know, rest your legs on that long journey, and then get back into your vehicle and you've had a lovely experience. And um, and and apparently like something like 65% of the sales at um at Kush Tart are people coming to the convenience store. Yeah. They didn't even buy gasoline. <laughs> They're there to buy their lottery shopping. ticket, yeah, yeah, yeah. want their cigarettes, <laughs> they want a cup of coffee. And and this just happens to be so conveniently located. This is this is a business model that will survive. It has some of the best locations around the world. Um, it's incredibly well managed. And and because people top of their minds say gas stations, we don't need yeah. those convenience stores in the future. We're gonna need them for a long time in the future and we'll still need them with the new vehicles. Yeah, and they're not thinking stealthy stealthy brick and mortar retailer right, right. <laughs> it's kind of it's very it's sort of uh you know i mean it's the same thing here right we have circle k that's all you know the, you know and then of course historically i just remember i always remember you know max milk right that was the that was the big retailer when when i was a kid right <laughs> that was the big <laughs> convenience store retailer but right. but uh when, when when you you know when you stop in for for uh you know for gas at a circle k um, you know, base station Esso, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things you can, you can stop in and buy when you're there. It's not just uh, a gas station and cigarettes. There's, there's, you know, there's goods, there's snacks, there's drinks, there's, <laughs> there's, there's usually a, like an A and W or something attached to it, you know? And, and so it's like an all in one convenient stop to, to, you know, if you're hungry or anything. So it's, mm -hmm. it's really an amazing business model when you, when you uh, when you add it up, and when you look at at the 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 added convenience now of being able to plug your your EV in at the station while you get a coffee, um, it's 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 brilliant. But it's something I I find it's the that's the innovativeness and creativity of Canadians because it's being done it's being done by Kushtard, but it's being done by other uh, by other companies as well. Here we we're 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 really good at taking something yes. that already exists and making it better. Yeah. And and adding you know adding creativity and innovation to run it better, and and the fact that that a, that a you know a, a Canadian company is is all over the world. I was I was blown away by by the attempt to acquire Carrefour, mm -hmm. which which you know being the the largest French retailer, uh, was mind blowing that a Canadian you know that a Canadian company was was in the market to acquire. The biggest retailer in France uh, was it's just you know it just makes you proud. You just you know, but but it, and, but it also created an enormous opportunity yeah. because a yeah. lot of people weren't happy with them doing that that yeah. uh, that change in strategy well, because it was but, a it was a, like a diversion from their core. But it yeah. was one way of getting a lot of guests, you know, convenience stores yeah. around the world very cheaply. Um, but. Uh, there, that stock price came down dramatically, if you recall, at that time. Yeah. And that we actually added more to our position because it was, it, you know, was so inexpensive. And, of course, that came back after the uh, deal was uh, not consummated. The, right. 
the French government wouldn't let them Yeah, do. They, they took sort of an antitrust stance against it, right? Yes. They didn't want a foreigner owning one of their biggest enterprises. So, but well, they're very cost yeah. conscious, and it was a very yeah. inexpensive way of buying <laughs> gas stations. And they could try their hand at at some retailing, or they could let it go. They could have spun that part off. Yeah, that was what they were afraid of in France, I guess. Which is, which is, you know, once they acquire this, what are they going to do with it? Are they going to take it apart? Right. They're 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 always afraid of of uh, you know North American corporators. <laughs> coming along and undoing their, you know, <laughs> undoing their social fabric. <laughs> so, Kim, um, I, this has been a, a, an amazing conversation. It's I want to thank you very much for your time and, and your incredibly valuable insight. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, I'm excited for the opportunities that, that we've talked about today. I think, I think it's, you know, I feel like Canada is, you know, we're, because we've talked about Canada, I feel like, you know, this really is the greatest country in the world. I think, I think this is, this is, uh, you know, for so many reasons, but I think this is, this is a country where, where, you know, so many people want to come and, and live here. And, and so, you know, when I, when I think about, when I contemplate the, the immigration drive that's happening in this country. Uh, and the amount of capital that's flowing to Canada, it's hard not to be very optimistic in the near term, but also the long term for for uh, what the future holds for Canada as well. Thank wow. you so much, and um, I hope we'll we'll have you again, and uh, we'll be next year. We'll be talking with you about about you know uh, getting an update from you about what's going on and what you see coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kim, once again, thank you. It's been an honor and it's been great to have you. Thank you. It was great, great questions. It was a lot of fun. I'd love to do it again. Thank you. Sorry. Look forward to it.